Blog Talk Radio. I think I'm just going to not do a movie podcast anymore, and instead, this is going to be the John Williams podcast. My God, everything that man has written for movies has just been absolutely fantastic. No, I'm just kidding. This is The Long Road to Ruin, and we are here to stay. I am, of course, the mandated reporter, and frankly, I'm mortified, Mr. Mark Radledge. And tonight, we have a nice, easy podcast. No thousand and one guests, no thousand and one movies. Three movies, a trilogy, if you will, the Jurassic Park trilogy, and tonight I am joined by my co-host, my main man, my other brother from another mother, because the first one is always Pat Mullen, but this is the other guy, and it's just going to be me and him chatting it up, dinosaur styly. Here he is, folks, the ringleader of 
401 Music Zones, three R's, Mr. Sean Comer. How do you do? Ahem. The original park that John Hammond was working on has now become a reality. The park is up and running at Isla Nublar. It's safe, profitable, and over 10 million people visited each year. The park still has velociraptors and a T-Rex, but they've been muzzled and trained to behave. There's also a section called Isla Nublar Lagoon, which is similar to SeaWorld and features an underwater dinosaur that does tricks for the audience. As part of the show, the dinosaur jumps out of the lagoon and swallows a great white shark that's strung up above the water. Everything is going great until a new dinosaur, not seen in any of the previous films, proves to be much smarter than initially thought and begins to wreak havoc. As the park begins to fall apart and lots of visitors are getting killed, the staff must figure out a way to stop the threat, including getting help from the Velociraptors and the T-Rex. Please tell me that that is, in fact, the plot outline of Jurassic Park 4 currently in production. That, Mark, is indeed the rumored, I stress that rumored, plot outline for Jurassic Park 4, at which point, in 2015, if this glorious shit-flinging mushroom cloud actually hits theaters, I am going to be issuing all of the apologies to the people who made Jurassic Park 3. (laughs) I have to say, as I was listening to you do that, I'm like, he's either just making shit up here or he's really reading from something. And And if he's reading a plot line for Jurassic Park movie where they actually get the park up and running after three films where people were killed by these things, someone decided, no, 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 this was this this could still happen. Let's run with that as a movie plot line. But basically the big thing that you're being lured to is to watch a theme park full of people get eaten by dinosaurs. I would go see that because I've been to Disney and my wife is very is very uh famous for saying among my family members, whenever she feels bad about her weight and herself in general, she goes to Disney to be made to feel better. It is Walmart. <laughs> it is Walmart times a thousand. Okay, you've seen the people of Walmart. You should see the people of Disney. You will never feel bad about yourself unless you're one of the scooter riders, in which case you should get eaten by a Tyrannosaurus Rex. You have not just jumped the shark. You have eaten the shark. <laughs> the shark is good, man. Have you ever had it? You have no. The, the dinosaur just the dinosaur got out of the water and about halfway up, it just decided. You know what? Why am I trying to clear this thing? I'm just going to swallow the damn shark, and I'm going to swallow the shark. I'm going to swallow Fonzie. I'm going to swallow Al. I'm going to swallow the surviving relatives of Michael Crichton. Dude, how awesome would it be to see a theme park full of fat, fat moron Americans get eaten by dinosaurs? I'm pantsless now be, just thinking about it. It would be every bit as awesome as Satan suplexing a train, my friend. And that is <laughs> and that is a level of awesome paralleled only by seeing Yor the Hunter from the Future hang glide down with a giant bat to drop kick a cave full of purple cave pen. You know... I've been reading um, 
Hulk comics as of late, and I just got finished with the uh, the last series of Incredible Hulk comics that preceded the Indestructible Hulk, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. And there's a panel. Now, in this series, the Hulk and uh, Banner have been separated by Victor Von Doom, Dr. Doom, and uh, the Hulk is living as his own entity, and Banner is living as his own entity. Um, and there's a uh, a bit where whoever this woman in the Amanda Von Doom says, I wonder what it looks like to see a Hulk sowing his wild oats. So, and there's a, and there's a, if you could picture this in sort of a movie montage, there's like a series of panels of the Hulk doing different things, sowing his oats as it were. And one of the panels I actually want to get made into a giant portrait to hang on the wall. It's, it's the Hulk fireside underneath an ice cap with a shark on a spit. <laughs> and all of this talk of talk of eating sharks is now making me hungry, and I've already eaten dinner tonight. Yeah, I am. Um, I'm actually going to be finishing mine up here in the first few minutes of the podcast. Um, I, I I I had an exhausting day, and just as as Robert Cooper can attest, because he kind of live riffed with me on Facebook, um, editing one of the most glorious nuggets of bug-fuck insanity ever committed to Microsoft Word. And it's not the uh, plot summary of Jurassic Park 4? No. No. <laughs> it, it is not the plot summary of Jurassic Park 4, miraculously. Um, this one does, however, actually include the line, it was the worst Christmas ever. <laughs> and not used ironically either. Not used ironically. Not used sarcastically. Is the line Just, before? Is the line before it? It was a dark and stormy night. <laughs> very few people get that reference. Very, very few people get that reference. I did it today at work, and it just flew over over, over everyone's head. Oh. Uh, anyway. Yeah, let's get to it. All right, folks, tonight, uh, as the opening bit of banter between myself and Sean uh, indicated to, we will be discussing in its entirety the Jurassic Park trilogy. Um, It's a classic trilogy in the sense that the first one really hits it out of the park, and unlike some of the other ones where the arc is first one's great, second one's even better, third one off the rails, the Jurassic Park trilogy, the trajectory line is straight down. Um the Lost World is slightly worse than Jurassic Park, and Jurassic Park 3 is one of the worst movies I've ever seen. Oh, God, was that terrible. So we're going to talk about them tonight, but I really want to celebrate the first film. Jurassic Park, which came out uh, the year that I was a junior, um, 1993, uh, directed by Steven Spielberg, starring Sam Neill, Laura Dern, Jeff Goldblum, Richard Attenborough, uh Bar- Bob Peck, Martin Ferrero, B.D. Wong, for those of you who watch Oz, um, Samuel Jackson, good old Wayne Knight, Newman, Joseph Mazzello, and Ariana Richards, and of course, scored by John Williams, who was awesome. Um, this movie is famous, not just because it's a My- Michael Crichton adaptation, but it was probably one of, for its time, one of the best uses of CGI. I think the thing that people remember about Jurassic Park is the dinosaurs look goddamn real. But I think what people also tend to forget about Jurassic Park is 
that for all of its um, running fear of from the monsters, there was actually a solid plot and people have complained about it, but I don't think this is true. I think there were some solid three-dimensional characters in this thing, with the exception of, of Jeff Goldblum. Um, so Jurassic Park I, I, is one of those movies, and, I, and we're going to get into talking about it now, was one of those movies that I think hit on all cylinders. It's probably, in terms of a summer blockbuster movie, one of the best ever committed to film. It, it, it hits on all cylinders. Jurassic Park don't know if you would agree with this, Sean, is probably one of the all-around best-made summer blockbusters in the history of film. Oh, I I agree without a doubt. Um, and actually, one the one thing I would say that would maybe just slightly qualify what you said about the effects, you are right on the money in that this is uh, this should be studied in film effects training institutes as an example of proper, justifiable, appropriate, respectful use of CGI. That part is very true. However, the part that a lot of people miss out on is the fact that the CGI is so impressive because, as it turns out, it blends so seamlessly with the practical effects to the point to where it's genuinely exceedingly difficult in some scenes to tell when you're looking at something that was added in post and when you're looking at just an exceptional actor or stunt worker in a suit on the set. So, I mean, and we'll, and we'll get into that particularly when we get to talking about uh, one of the more famous scenes in the movie, and that is the climactic uh, Velociraptor assault. I think one of the things that should be noted about this was that, uh, as you said, they weren't overly reliant on the CGI. They used the CGI when it was necessary, uh, you know, to create realistic scenes of dinosaurs attacking human beings and you know dinosaurs interacting with human beings and such. But they were also animatronic dinosaurs. Um, they weren't. This wasn't a situation where they were using CGI to create entire landscapes. They actually shot, I think, some of this on location. So, you know, note to people that, um, just like George Lucas, that want to make big, epic summer blockbusters, you still have to shoot, like, real-life people in real-life places. Or what you end up with is a movie that looks more like a video game. I'm not one of those people who's bothered by that sort of thing, but certainly I know people who are. So I think that's one of the places where Jurassic Park absolutely succeeds. But that's what everyone talks about. Tonight, what I want to focus on actually is some of the things that uh, may be debatable among people, and that is the story of Jurassic Park and the, uh, and the characters and the acting that was involved. Because we all know the dinosaurs look great. But... What sets the original movie apart from the next two, especially the third one, is at the heart of Jurassic Park was a, philosoph a philosophical question. And that is, if, the, if human beings have the ability to play God, should they? And I think between Sean and I, we can actually entertain that to a degree on tonight's podcast. Because Jurassic Park is a story about... Um, scientists and an entrepreneur who are, are able to acquire uh, 
genetic specimens from dinosaurs and then, in effect, clone dinosaurs for the purposes of creating a zoo uh, for people to visit. Now, what I love about Jurassic Park is not just all the things that we talked about, you know, the special effects and the dinosaurs and all that. It's that very question that they spend time in the movie and they give us characters that are able to uh, converse on the subject fairly intelligently. If you have the ability to be God and create life, should you? And what are the ramifications of doing so? What did you think about that, Sean? Did you think that Jurassic Park adequately handled that subject um, to your to your enjoyment and to your appreciation? Well, I think it did because really you can't really talk about what a great movie Jurassic Park was and what an achievement it was for Steven Spielberg and all the people involved in it unless you talk about the fact that it really was the career hallmark, the crowning achievement, the magnus, the magnus opus of the late Michael Crichton. Um, now, personally, as a reader, Jurassic Park, both the novel and the movie, came out when I was in elementary school. Uh, it was one of the earliest adult books that I actually read and really understood pretty well. And at that time, that, so of course, naturally, that kind of imprinted on me, Michael Crichton, as the first grown-up, so to speak, author that I really enjoyed reading. And what I always found throughout all of his books were that he was very hit or miss. Um, I, I will admit that I never actually fully read some of the stuff that was not quite so science fiction-based. Uh, I never read Disclosure. I did read Rising Sun and enjoyed it. But when Crichton really got it, really got into a serious scientific topic, he dove headlong into it. And sometimes the results were spectacularly engaging, as they were with with uh, Jurassic Park. And that was because he had a grounding there, as you put it, in. Uh, in a significant philosophical discussion, because this was at a point when cloning and genetic engineering the world over really was entering a new era. This it was, was entering the mainstream. I want to I want to say that at the time, I mean, even uh, people like Janine Garofalo were making jokes about it because cloning was in the news. The uh, Congress had to sit down and tackle the subject and decide to create laws that would limit, if not forbid. The uh, the act of cloning because they didn't want this to start producing Franken science. Well, right, and and here's where you have to make a differentiation, in particular, between Jurassic Park and The Lost World because those were the only two movies that are actually based on full novels that Crichton wrote. In Jurassic Park, Crichton was using a novel to really frame a bigger picture discussion, to to frame a to frame a dialogue about something. And that made it compelling as it made the characters voices in their voices in that argument and the actions reflective of the very real issues of it. He approached it with a sense of gravitas. Uh, in a sense, he was writing his era's Frankenstein. You know, he, he was writing his his trial of whether or not man had any business playing God with Mother Nature. Uh, 
the different thing that was that was the lost world, there really was not such a significant argument there to frame. It was just that he was being commissioned to write a sequel that he knew full well was existed only to spawn a movie. That that, that was it. That was the only reason Lost World really existed was so Universal could capitalize and make a multi-film franchise out of it. And it shows in what a significantly weak movie The Lost World is and how shoehorned in the philosophical arguments are, how ham-fisted uh, the, the Vince Vaughn character is in that whole movie. And I, I know we'll get to that before you even have to stop me about it. But <laughs> Jurassic Park is a, vis- is a visual treat that really, if you look past that, there's even more to it to love. Um, in terms of even even if some of the characters are uh, are just a little bit schlocky at times. Um, yeah, we're going to talk and, about Jeff Goldblum. Oh, we're going to talk about Goldblum. We are going to talk about Goldblum. Um, you know, even even in that sense, even if there's a little bit of creative license sometimes with the actual with the depiction of the actual dinosaurs themselves, uh, it's it's still a great story. It's still it's still well developed. It manages to to make its point without ever getting really preachy. Um, the Lost yep. World, on the other hand, was at times like being beaten over the skull for two hours with a PETA sign. Yeah, it. We're gonna get there. I want to talk about this. Now, I'm not complaining in any way, shape, or form about Jurassic Park. Some of the individual performances and characters I have some issue with, but um, I'm gonna. I'm, I'm going to propose this to you that they missed an opportunity maybe to make an even stronger movie uh, because you can, I think you can tell in the movie which side Crichton is coming in favor of, which is we probably shouldn't be mucking about too much with the natural order of things. Dinosaurs are gone. Let them be gone. Let's not get into creating, you know, vast amount of extinct life here, lest we, uh, we surrender the planet to them. But, yeah, basically, basically, dinosaurs were awesome, but nature laid their asses off for a reason. Yeah. So, yeah. but uh, what, I, what I wanted to get to was um, a little bit of the plot here. Now, as you all know, if you've listened to The Long Road to Ruin long enough, uh, we don't go scene by scene, plot point by plot point through the movie. We discuss the relevant uh, parts of the plot as needed, and you know, we go over things um, if they relate to the overall discussion. The plot of Jurassic Park is that uh, they've brought scientists there to... There's an accident, I think, at the very beginning that sort of sets the whole thing in motion. And for insurance purposes, scientists are commissioned to come onto the island to to report whether or not this thing is going to be safe for tourists. That's the the premise. Um, There's a subplot in there regarding Wayne... Let's face. Wayne um, Knight... Yeah, where he's being, where he feels underappreciated and underpaid. So he essentially sabotages in an attempt to steal. He sabotages the park, and hilarity ensues. <laughs> I, I, you know what? I suddenly want to make a movie now, even just a short subject film called Newman and the Dinosaur. <laughs> in, yes, his interactions with the dinosaurs before he dies is pretty funny. But um, where I was going with this is. When you have a movie as heady as uh, Jurassic Park, which deals with, you know, is cloning okay? 
philosophically speaking, morally speaking, ethically speaking, is it okay to clone people, beings, things? Is it is this okay? Um, unfortunately, I think they missed an opportunity to really make a strong point about that because essentially the problem with Jurassic Park stems from the actions of one guy, Mr. Wayne Knight. He sabotages the park in order to uh, make a getaway with, uh, I forget, what was it, eggs? Embryos. It was embryos, right, it was embryos uh, in the Barbasol can, (laughs) if I remember correctly. (laughs) And and, and, in his doing that, sets a domino effect of uh, of things going haywire in which the dinosaurs start to escape and now everyone and, and now we kind of transition into a monster movie where you know people are being chased by these giant monsters and it's, there's more to it than that because eventually we have to talk about the the parenting issue um as one of the subplots which I which I liked and I want to talk about it but if you if I'm sitting here and saying if your if your argument to me is cloning bad and you submit to me Jurassic Park, I'm going to tell you, well, I don't really see it in this movie as um, as that being the problem. The problem is this shitty fellow. <laughs> Wayne Knight's the problem with cloning, not cloning in and of itself. Do you see what I'm saying? I think they they wrote in this plot device so that they could have things go haywire, but that doesn't necessarily tell me that in and of itself cloning was the problem. Had they created a movie in which the natural order of things is... Um, turned on its head and all of the same things happen in this movie as far as them have being chased by dinosaurs but that's because the dinosaurs themselves uh destroy the place and and break out of their cages and things go haywire i think you make a much stronger argument when it's wayne newton's fo- wayne newton <laughs> when it's wayne knight <laughs> i do blame wayne newton for everything but that's not the issue here um when it's wayne knight's fault I think that takes away from the overall point of the movie. What do you think? And do you see where I'm getting uh, at? Oh, I think we have a case here of Ozzy started a line of ants, and then it was the worst Oz fest ever. <laughs> do tell. Do tell. <laughs> um, you, you taught me way, way too well, Mark. Uh, but... No, I, I I agree. It's in a sense, it actually seems like an idea that is crazy as this is gonna as this is gonna sound. It seems like an idea that actually could have worked. It, it, it seems like something that maybe with just a few little tweaks here and there, you know, it could have possibly yeah. been viable. Yeah, it, forget about it forgetting worked. about Ozzy. If Woody had gone to the police, this would have never have happened. Yeah, precisely, precisely. But um, but then, lo and behold, you know, we we had somebody snorting a line of ants. In this case, it was <laughs> Dennis Nedry deciding that he was going to be a black market baby dealer uh, with a Barbasol can. And then, lo and behold, next thing you know, he's running he's running across a loogie hawking dinosaur, <laughs> and then. Yeah, yeah, just hawking, you know, flemmy black death at him. And then next thing you know, because he planned it so poorly, the fences are going the fences are going down, dinosaur dinosaurs everywhere, and all they're realizing is, Whoa, what a glorious new world we've entered. What are these delightful sausages that shriek when I bite them? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, so, I, I I feel like there was a stronger movie had they just not had the Wayne Knight bit in it. But they did. Um, they kind of I think they took the sort of the easy way out with uh, getting the action of the movie going. But up to that point, um, I thought there was a lot of really, really good dialogue. The dinner scene. First of all, <laughs> I love the John Hammond character because the whole time he's I, – I love his catchphrase, spared no expense. Everything was spared no expense, um, which is great. Yeah. <laughs> Tile on the floor, spared no expense. Um, everything. I, I, I love that about that character. But, you know, here he is. They could have very easily made him uh, Boris, Boris Badenoff. You know, they, they could have made him, you know, just the uh, just just the money grubbing, uh, kind of the, the the corporation from Aliens. You know, just completely amoral. Uh, um, you, you know, I, I disagree. I'll tell you what John Hammond is. I'm not I, saying I want he you was to... that. They didn't make him that. They could have, uh, but they straight oh, away oh, they actually oh, made him a. You know, the, the fact is, is Richard Attenborough totally played him so so straight. And you, you got to keep in mind, this is also the guy that played Santa Claus in that horrible, horrible Mara Wilson remake of Miracle on 34th Street. Um, this is this is what would happen if. And stay with me here. Stay with me as best you can. And no, you may not buy pot from me. When I'm done with this, um, well, this ought to be good. Then I want you. I want you to imagine if Santa Claus took over Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. I'm and, on the train. I'm on the train. And Santa at some. And Santa at some point when the Oompa Loompas are revolting and burning shit down and torching mattresses and, you know, anally violate, violating Veruca Salt with pixie sticks um, and burning big marshmallow effigies of, Will, of Willie and Santa Hammond that Santa just cannot admit that he fucked up. That he just refuses to admit that he admit that him running a candy factory was just a monumentally bad idea. That is what you have with John Hammond. You have a guy who looks and sounds like a very kindly old Santa Claus figure who is running the biological equivalent to Willy Wonka's world of pure, horrible, horrible imagination. And when things start going wrong, unlike Willie, who's able to keep his cool and slap them orange Oompa Loompa bitches and make them act right, um, he just won't admit that anything's going wrong. And he spares he no just, expense. Yeah, well, yeah, of course. He, of course, you know, he's that. that's one thing they have in common. Is you, if you were to ask both Willie and John Hammond, they would both probably say, oh, I spared no expense. Um, except that, of course, it just keeps getting worse, and they keep insisting that it can be fixed, that everything can be brought back under control. That's what you, that's what you have. But again, the glorious thing about it is the fact that you could have had Richard Attenborough totally play up the, 
the eccentricities that you would expect from somebody like if, say, Richard Branson were to, or Mark Cuban were to come forward tomorrow and basically, and basically announce to the New York Times, two words, dinosaurs, bitches. <laughs> you know, don't give that, them any ideas. You know, that that kind of yeah that that kind of bombast and attitude is what you would expect from guys from guys like that. On the other hand, Attenborough just plays it right straight up. He's 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 very uh, what's the word we're looking for? Um, proud but restrained. I think would be the way to put it. I think you summed it up when you said he's playing the role very straight. You know, he's not playing it like Boris Badenov. He's not playing it like, you know, the mustache-twisting, top-hatted villain. This is, you know, in, in, in a way, he's doe-eyed and naive. You know, all he wants – like, yes, he, he's he's an entrepreneur and he wants this to make money. But he says throughout various parts of the movie that his intent here is to create an experience for people – Money is secondary. It's the lawyer that's like, oh, my God, what, what, the money is going to be falling out of the sky. Fucking dinosaurs. You know, um, so I, that's one of the things, like I said, I like, he's not a villain in the movie. Unfortunately, I, you know, he, he's he sort of, you know, set up this thing and he wants it to work. He desperately wants it to work. I like the fact that they brought in, like, his grandchildren as a device to kind of get him to just sort of shake him. You know, that that is your uh, Moonstruck scene right there. When he realizes that he's now put his uh, grandchildren in mortal peril, that's the smack in the face and Cher's telling, hey, snap out of it. You know, and, and, then, it, and then it's no longer about the park. It's about getting the kids to safety. You know. Um, uh, God, though, do we have to endure some pretty stereotypical bad child acting and bad child character writing along the way, though? <laughs> well, well, we'll get there. Um, and in short order, because we do have to move this along. But um, like I said, I think they, they missed an opportunity to just play the dinosaurs wreaking havoc on the place as opposed to there's a villain in the mist who sort of set things uh, on a path. They, I think there was a good conversation at dinner uh, in, the, in the dinner with, <laughs> with the salmon. They, they kept mentioning the salmon uh, where they're discussing it. And he's uh, and and he has a and Hammond has a great line in that scene. He was like, you know, I bring all of these scientists. You're supposed to be on my side, and the only one who sees things the way I do is the blood sucking lawyer. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's a great line. Um, but you know, it's uh, the scientists in this thing. Uh, well, I really hate the Jeff Goldblum character. I know I'm probably one of the few. Everyone loved him seemingly, but I, I actually like um, the lead in this. Uh, Sam Neill, I believe it is. Yeah, Sam Neill. Um, I like his character. I like, you know, that he's cautious but awestruck. I love that about. I loved that about him, and I like the fact that he was also his his character arc was you know learning to be a dad, kind of a thing. Um, but the conversation. Let me let let me address it so that we can move on. Where they really discuss is this a good idea or not, and it's and it kind of sets up the rest of the movie. I thought handled the subject material well. You're right. It's not preachy because essentially they, they present to you two sides of an argument and then a, a scene or two later, things start to fall apart. So the audience is sort of left to make its own decision and then enjoy the rest of the movie. There isn't, you know, because and, and maybe that's also why now that I'm saying that out loud, that's why they went in the direction that instead of um, 
making a stronger argument and sort of beating you over the head with it. They're just we're going to take the fa- we're going to take things going wrong with this park out of uh, the realm of argument and just make something else the reason for it. So that way you can enjoy the movie and come to your own conclusions about cloning. So, you know, in retrospect, it's probably that, that probably was a stronger way of doing it overall as opposed to making a stronger argument in the movie. You know, and actually there, there's a moment in the movie just, just to address one of, as you people know, sometimes a movie comes along and if you can't tell from listening to past shows, Sometimes I'll come across just a small piece of dialogue that anybody else would overlook. And I just happen to, for one reason or another, absolutely love it. It becomes one of my favorite parts of the movie. Um, One of the best, what what goes to show you the way they were actually trying to give this discussion a little bit of weight um, was the fact that at one point during the dinner scene, which, which, as you mentioned before, I think is one of the very best scenes in the movie. Um, especially in a movie that is not exactly necessarily known for having great dialogue or Jeff Goldblum aside, really memorable character performances, is the part where Hammond says, condors, condors are on the brink of extinction. If I were to to breed a flock of condors on this island, and you get the point that he's trying to make, and on the surface, it kind of makes sense. And in a lot of other movies, they wouldn't go to this type of depth with this argument to actually kind of address a fallacious approach to it. And the fact is, is you get, I believe it was, if I recall correctly, by all means, Mark, correct me if I'm wrong here, I think it was Grant that actually points out, both Grant and Malcolm, that point out that, no, some species do go extinct for a reason. They go extinct because they're ill-adapted to their environment. And I think I like it because I grew up as, as still am, an avid hunter and fisherman. So I grew up learning about things like conservation and the network and the nature of how ecosystems work and how really fragile they are and how easily they can be thrown out of balance. And the fact is, is the thing about this argument is, yes, on the one side, Dinosaurs walking the earth again? Pretty fucking cool. Uh, yeah, it would be awesome to be able to go on a helicopter or driving tour of, of some little Costa Rican paradise and all, and all of a sudden you look up and holy fucking shit, Bachiosaurus! But on the other hand, even though that's something like a prey animal, or even if you were to take like a smaller dinosaur, I mean... The thing is, is if it were to really pan out, you got to look at the fact that something as small as, say, a zebra mussel, for those who are avid boaters or fishermen, um, are known to wreak havoc on any freshwater lake to which they're introduced because they throw the ecosystem out of balance. Um, they harm the environment for the rest of the vegetation and the fish and other organi- organisms that thrive in that environment. You hear all the time about people taking um, uh, foreign-born fish and introducing them to American freshwater or even saltwater environments, thinking, well, it's just a fish. What's it going to do? Come on. No harm, no foul. It's just one more fish in the lake. Well, then that ends up being a problem 
because it ends up making it impossible for the other species to survive. Um, we see this with the introduction of wolves to Yellowstone Park. And God knows, I know people are going to jump down my throat about this one because this is a touchy issue. Is but it about lion tacos? <laughs> Unfortunately, no. Although, God, you're making me hope that taco fusion expands eastward a little <laughs> bit. Or no, wait, no, you're in Florida. That'd be westward. Yeah. Yes. Way, way westward. Um, come on, taco fusion. Get with it. Yeah. Uh, put up a franchise in Phoenix. God, yes. <laughs> um, but the point being is they reintroduced wolves to Yellowstone. It was a great idea because at first there was the idea that when the pack reached a certain level, the wolves would be delisted and limited hunting would be allowed. Regulated, limited hunting to keep the population in check. Problem was, the delisting never happened because the government caved to largely anti-hunting advocates who just didn't want to see the wolves killed off at all, and it's just said, oh, no, the wolves won't go outside the park. The wolves will acknowledge the park boundaries. Well, lo and behold, guess what ended up happening? How many wolves so, killed people living in the suburbs? Well, it's not really the people you got to worry about. That's actually the predator problem in other locations, like if you look at uh, mountain lions in California. The problem is, or, or hell, or feral hogs just about anywhere they go. I was going to say, we have a feral um, hog problem here in Florida. Well, yeah, and, they, and they're not so much attacking people as they do destroy property, kill other animals, right. just become a general nuisance. Um, but the fact was, was obviously the wolves started breeding. And wolves are apex predators. The, no naturally occurring predator in their environment hunts them. So you have a wolf pack that is growing out of control, Nothing is checking the population. And what happened was they started attacking livestock and the local game herds. So as a consequence, you had heads of cattle worth thousands of dollars apiece that were being taken down by being taken down by wolves. The ranchers then had to start taking matters into their own hands and start just shooting the things on site. As opposed to actual to a regulated hunting system wherein money for licenses goes toward management of the species. So instead what they're doing is they're just shooting them on shooting them on site, getting rid of them, shutting up about it. Um, yep. you also have the problem that they were also killing off the elk herds. So you had legitimate guiding and hunting outfitters who had been in right. business for generations that were all of a sudden going out of business because the elk herds were being depleted. You're not so, going so to bring hunters in if there's no if, if there's no elk to hunt. Right. To and to, to bring this I was to say to bring this to a close, you have the law of unintended consequences when you start mucking about with the natural order of things. I think it's very easy for people to point to the human race and say, look at what the humans do. We pollute, we do this, we do that, we do the other thing, without realizing what our role is in the grand scheme of things. And as I tell my father the human beings would have to do a considerable amount to really do permanent damage to this planet. The thing of it is, is that the human race will die out in X amount of years. The planet will con will continue on, and something else will inhabit it. I'm not you know what? tremendously I, I'm worried. So, 
I'm so glad you mentioned that. I'm so glad because something that I heard a few years ago, and I say heard not as like heard a rumor, as an actually got a chance to listen to it, and it's actually pretty poignant and really worth kind of sitting down over over a nice scotch or a brandy or a glass of wine and enjoying. Was a recording, a dramatic reading, if you will, by Charlton Heston of Crichton's foreword to the novel, which is essentially, I believe it was the foreword or the afterword, one or the other, I forget which it was, um, in which the the general statement was, how arrogant is it of man to really think that of all the species of species on Earth that have existed over the millions of years that the fossil record indicates the Earth has been supporting life, that man is going to be the one great species that can single-handedly bring about its destruction. Right. Basically, basically, it was Crichton saying, humanity, let's get real. Yeah. The Earth has been yeah. around for millions of years before you. It will be around for millions of, ye- millions of years after you. <laughs> If he really these days somebody would have probably just written in short mankind nature given no kinds of fuck about you. <laughs> so back to the you topic. Are, you will you will not destroy me. You stick around with me. I will end you and make you like it. Right. Which was that brings <laughs> you back to the ultimate question. If you're not worried about necessarily destroying the planet. I, I, you have to then ask yourself, and then we're going to move forward with this because I don't want to stay too long on this particular subject, but while Jurassic Park is a nice movie and it certainly examines an interesting question, I think a question that needs to be asked, you have to take it a step further and think logically. Why would you, as man, create a species that would prey upon you? That would be like deciding that you were going to genetically create monster spiders, you know, or or something along those lines. You know, giant bears. You know, or, or be pinky in the brain and animate a bunch of zucchini that well, that would then well, feed on you. Because basically, because the difference is, uh, reanimating a bunch of zucchini would be hilariously awesome, especially if we all got <laughs> really high at the same time. Um, the the giant bears, okay. Scary, yeah, pretty terrifying. Um, giant spiders, okay, spiders are creepy fuckers. They All right, are inherently of... creepy fucks. However, speaking of... the one the one thing we have kind of ingrained in our heads, dinosaurs equals cool. <laughs> yep, so, so says Godzilla. Dinosaurs, dinosaurs equals everything make more, everything becomes infinitely more awesome. How do you make Doctor Who more awesome? More awesome? Boom. Matt Smith riding a Triceratops. You're right. Absolutely. Okay, that didn't that that did not work out nearly as well as Stephen Moffat planned, but you see where he was going with that. Yep, giant spiders make hand, everything cool too, just like Wild Wild West. Hey, speaking of creepy, uh, yeah. as creepy as a spider, Jeff Goldblum in this movie. Uh, oh, I thought you, you said Jeff, and for a split second, I thought you were going to say, "Fuck me, you said no Harris tonight." <laughs> Googly, stay on focus, stay on topic, be nice. <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah, we're, kids, when Mark says be nice, what he really means is don't you fucking get me started. <laughs> Jeff Goldblum is probably the – I'm, I'm going to continue on with this podcast. Um, is yeah. pro- 
as the uh, Dr. Ian McDowell, Malcolm, Malcolm McDowell, Malcolm in the middle. That's his name. Ian Malcolm. (laughs) Thank you. Ian Malcolm. Although although Dr. Malcolm in the middle would have been kind of awesome, too. So Jeff Goldblum is Malcolm X in this movie. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Just bothers the shit out of me. I uh, that, that I is our trade-off. If you cast the guy from Chronicle as Johnny, as Johnny Storm, the Human Torch, Jeff Goldblum gets to play Malcolm X. <laughs> um, it really irritates me. Um, his everything, everything about his character, everything about the performance, just irritated the living shit out of me in this movie. It is probably <laughs> the one thing about this movie that I look at. I mean, I'm look as somebody who watches film and studies this and does podcasts on it. You know, I can tear apart just about anything. I mean, I in the same podcast, I can say I can tear apart Jurassic Park eight ways from Sunday and complain about it, and I called it a per, almost a perfect summer blockbuster. So, so as to not talk out of both sides of my mouth, I love everything about this movie except Jeff Goldblum. Um, <laughs> Jeff, his character bothers me because I don't like stock one-note caricatures, and that's kind of what he is. You know, what I like about um, Heron... Helen Mirren, is that her name? Laura Dern. I was Helen Mirren. Yeah. No, Laura Dern, Laura, yeah. Laura Dern. What I like about Sam Neill and Laura Dern's characters in this is that they're struggling with the question. I like the fact that they're, you know, that they're um, cautiously optimistic, that their love of science and, and, the, and the opportunity that's being presented to them is sort of at war with their... Uh, with their fear of this great power that's now been let loose into the world, which is fucking dinosaurs, people. I mean, let's let's face it here: when Godzilla shows up at your doorstep, shit just got real. And and so they're just, struggling I, with that. I, I I just like the fact that despite the fact that the dinosaurs are looming over her, uh, Laura Dern, anytime almost anybody speaks to her, cannot stop giggling. <laughs> right, you know. Uh, so, so you know what? I, I will have a big fucking twelve pound sack of whatever she's having. The um, well, that's one of the things I really like about the movie is that I think these are real world reactions to what they're being dropped into, and even the blood sucking lawyer, and I think everyone's reacting kind of naturally given their given the context of their character, except for Jeff Goldblum. Jeff Goldblum is one note the entire time. This is bad. Don't do it. This is bad. Don't do it. And it's like, okay, I get that that's what you're there for. You know, you're kind of one, you're kind of one extreme side of the argument. The lawyer's the other extreme side of the argument. And in the middle are your two stars, uh, Sam Neill and Laura Dern. Got it. The problem is, A, he beats it to death the way he's written. B, Jeff Goldblum, for some odd reason, it's like, well, there's all kinds of ways you, you can portray this. Uh, mathematic genius. I'm going to go with smarmy. <laughs> I'm going to go with uh, smarmy cretin. You know, I, I know it's pronounced cretin, but I like cretin. Um, I, I like uh, like his scenes with Laura Dern. I had to peel a layer of slime off my HDTV. You know what I'm saying? This guy comes across like, you know, like he should have been a mustachioed villain. You know, I expect I almost expected him to grab Laura Dern's hand and kiss up her arm. That's how smarmy he comes across. And it almost takes me out of the movie where it's just like, oh, and then every time he talks, it's like, ugh. first of all, stop mumbling, Kurt Cobain. You know, fucking you're in a major motion picture here. Enunciate. Who are you? The fucking guy from uh, The Usual Suspects? Um, 
I don't know. Did he bother you that much, or am I, or is this one of those things where note rattle it, you're on your own. It only seems to bother you. Folks, something needs explained here. In life, there are some pursuits that have a ceiling upon their their achievement, a point past which everybody else who ever enters that that pursuit is forced to acknowledge, well, that's it. There's just no topping it. I'm I'm not even going to bother because if you can't be the best, what's the point of trying? Um, when it comes to when it comes to trolling, for example, uh, to be a little bit topical for a second, folks, Edward Snowden lo- ruined it for everybody. He he tricked several dozen journalists onto a plane from Moscow to from Moscow to Cuba and basically stranded them in Savannah for a couple of days by getting them onto a flight that he never had any intention of showing up for. Trolling is over, everyone. Uh, anonymous, 4chan, sorry, you're, you're never going to top that. Um, basically, Vladimir Putin is standing on the shore of Russia, facing Alaska, and flipping off America with Robert Kraft's Super Bowl ring on his middle finger. Um, such is the case with finding really easy ways to make money. People come up with schemes all the time. They stage accidents. They stage robberies. They scam charities. Some people even start legitimate businesses, like services wherein people can send little messages back and forth, but, oh, you can only use 140 characters at a time. Uh, Folks, Jeff Goldblum has found the easiest possible way to make a metric fuck ton of money over the course of a couple of decades. And that is, be Jeff Goldblum. Because somewhere along the line, people started mistaking that for acting. I was going to say, isn't he the same character in Jurassic Park that he was in Independence Day and in The Fly? Which is the same character he was in The Fly. The one and only time I can really call anything he has ever endeavored to attempt acting was when he made his feature film debut in The Mechanic. Um which is because Jeff had not figured this out yet, that he could just be his his awkward, mumbling, stuttering self stuttering self with absolutely no sense of no sense of volume control or, or when to emphasize which word which word in his voice. Um, and people would just find this absolutely balls to the wall entertaining. And mistake this for being a really nuanced performance. Well, so it is with Jurassic Park. Jeff milked this for two fucking movies and got paid millions of dollars for each one just to show up in Hawaii, wear all black for a few days, uh, make attempts to awkwardly try to get into a giggly, gawky Laura Dern's pants, and despite the fact there really wasn't much to it, they brought him back for the sequel. There's nothing to the character, even if I do like the way he delivers the lines during the dinner scene. And he really does get some of the most pointed dialogue in the entire movie. But... There's no it, range. And he's the same. Well, well, and no, it's funny, well, I was actually reading one of the criticisms of this, like, oh, they took Jeff Goldblum out of the movie too early. No, they should have killed him. That's the problem. <laughs> yeah, maybe he should have been the guy in the toilet. Um, that would have been awesome! But 
hey, you know, we were following Crichton's story, and obviously, folks, let's face it, if you couldn't pick off which one of these guys was going to be killed in a humiliating way by a, t- by a T-Rex from the moment you saw him, I don't know what else to tell you. You'll apparently be gotten by anything. Go check out this great little movie called The Village. You'll you'll probably love it. Um, go see go see Signs. You'll you'll love the twist ending in that one. You'll love it because apparently you see everything on that much of a delayed reaction. So, but getting back to Goldblum though, he. He's mildly entertaining because for some reason we have found a scenario in which Jeff Goldblum, being Jeff Goldblum, is actually mildly funny for about five minutes. So, but, of course, lo and behold, then came the Lost World and then Saban suplexed a train and it proceeded to be the worst Christmas ever. Let's really quickly, so we can close out our discussion of Jurassic Park. Um, yep. There's a subplot in here with Sam Neill and and John Hammond's grandchildren, who are essentially there to get Sam Neill to turn around on the whole idea of having children, which is never followed up on. By the way, it, it, two movies later, you know, had Jurassic. <laughs> Had Jurassic Park completely flopped, had people been like, fucking dinosaurs, what are you, crazy? I'm not going to see this tripe. And that movie had bombed. The plot line with him wanting kids would have never paid off. It's one of those really odd things in the movie where they set up this whole thing where, like, you know, she's talking about having kids. He never wants to have kids. He wants to, he wants to forever dig for bones in the desert. And then he goes on this adventure um, where he has to uh, parent these two children in a crisis where they're being chased by monsters. And in the end, he finds that the love of children is the strongest love of all, yada, yada, yada. And then there's absolutely no follow-up, nothing. It's 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 the last thing you see is Sam Neill with the two kids who fell asleep on him that are not his fucking kids, first of all. They're, they're, they're Hammond's grandchildren. He's got to give them back. It isn't like there's like a fast forward, you know, and they're like, and they're, and Sam Neill adopts these children and raises them to be the best paleontologist you ever well, seen in your life. You know what though? It, it makes it makes a little more sense in the book because, and and spoilers ahead, because in the book, Hammond dies. Okay, but I but, and I want to hear your very quick explanation of this. But let us remember, movies are movies, books are books. Books are not ancillary supplemental material for a movie. If you can't address uh, I, it in the movie, it doesn't count. No, I know, I know, I, I, I get that. Keep your, keep your shorts on. That's not what I'm saying. No, Never. please, Mark. I know, I know what you do in your off time. Please, pants on. <laughs> Clear on that. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> seriously, folks, follow him on Facebook every weekend. This guy. Um, nope. Can't wait I'm to, have... can't wait to announce when he drops trial. Um, I'm having a no-pants party, and everyone's invited. The pants-off dance-off in the Rattlers household. You had to say that when I know I'm out of Jameson. <laughs> um, Go on. Anyway, no, the, the point is, is you went with the same ending scene for the movie. However, you ended it without Hammond having died. In the book, it made 
in the book it would have made in the book it did make sense to have it end that way because yeah I could see kind of the implication of implication of oh okay he's now going to become kind of a father figure to these kids now that now that their grandfather is gone which actually doesn't even make sense there because the kids parents were divorcing they weren't dead in the book but anyway <laughs> um it makes even less sense in less sense in the movie because you're ending it on a scene that made sense given the prior events in the books, but in the movie, Hammond lived. So that's so. Hence, uh, lo and behold, somebody's trying to call me. <laughs> um, I'm tempted to bring her in on this call just as a just as a lesson: don't call during a podcast. Um, hence, there's no kind payoff. Of, what are you What are you doing with my grandkids? Yes. My my yeah. grandkids. Right. That's what I mean. This it's it this is movie one oh one. Don't introduce stuff that there's no payoff to. You know, like I said, uh, I, yeah. I, there's a there's, there's a lot of good things in Jurassic Park. This is one of those things where if if you're just wanting if you're watching the movie and you're not thinking too much about it, it probably doesn't even occur to you. But when you're sitting here and examining it and you're looking at all of the things that are good and bad, it's like, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> well, yeah, well, yeah, well, yeah. It's 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 a part of Chekhov's gun. It's that idea that if you have a gun on stage in the first act, you better make cocksure that by the end of the third act, somebody fires that shit. Otherwise, there's no point to even putting it there. Otherwise, just I felt like have I felt like having a gun there because on the one hand, having some things makes sense. You have David Arquette win the WCW title, and it's to the end that over a decade later, Dolph Ziggler wins the world title. <laughs> there, there, there was a payoff there. There was a payoff you never fucking explained, but I'm going to take your word for it. Say there, say there was a payoff there. Now, let's conclude our discussion of the original Jurassic Park by saying to the people at Warner Brothers, who I know are listening to this podcast, we've already established that in previous podcasts, they are they are trolling and they are trolling the long road to ruin for ideas on how to do uh, their DC comic movies. This is Jurassic Park for anyone interested is how you do a summer blockbuster thrill ride for people with more than two brain cells. This is how you do a movie that isn't dumb. You know the constant complaint that I have with a lot of the summer blockbusters is while the, while visually they are fun. And when you want to see a brand that you enjoy, you know, animated come to life, um, unfortunately, it, in, in the production of these things, people seem to think that, like, a, a solid plot isn't necessary. You know, they just, it, it's Transformers. They're just like, look, if we throw enough, or oh, the Phantom Menace, let's just throw a bunch of shit on screen and people will be happy and no one will think too hard about this. Well, no, because along come two assholes with a podcast that are thinking about this, and we expect a movie that isn't written for, for kindergartners. We expect a movie that is written for people who can read at an adult uh, at an adult level. And Jurassic Park is the model that everyone should be using. You know, don't be afraid to ask a philosophical question and answer it in the movie, or leave it open-ended for people to discuss after. Don't be afraid to have characters that are uh, fully fleshed out and three-dimensional. There's always room for a dinosaur chasing people through the woods, but you have to, but in between, you have to actually have stuff happening that isn't just visually exciting. And, and that, I think, is the lesson from Jurassic Park, which is then completely abandoned in the next two movies. So let's talk about them. 
Um, and so because Hollywood hates me, they look at all the characters that are left alive at the end of Jurassic Park and go, okay, well, Sam Neill was a good character, and Laura Dern was a good character, but, but you know, idiots seem to like Jeff Goldblum, so let's make him the star of the next one. And <laughs> sorry to anyone who I just insulted, but it really he really drove, drove me crazy. So... <laughs> Uh, so uh, Michael Crichton was commissioned to write a second book, and from the second book came a sequel to one of the highest-grossing blockbusters of all time, Jurassic Park. Uh, the sequel, The Lost World, Jurassic Park, Jurassic Park Two. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to skip to the end of this movie for the in the interest of time. I'm going to tell you what exactly my problem with this movie is. The plot of this thing is that there's a second island that they had initially used to breed the dinosaurs. And um, John Hammond's company, having faced bankruptcy, is now being taken over by um, evil evil CEO, which I think is his nephew. Uh, What they want to do is they want to take the dinosaurs from Island 2, we'll call it, and they want to build... Yeah, Site B. And they want to move, and they want to build a Jurassic Park in San Diego. So they want to, which is, which. Hang on, let me get there because th- there was a better movie to be written here if they had gone with with the second idea. But let, let me let me explain what the first idea was. So the actual plot line is that uh, evil corporation wants to transport the dinosaurs from Site B to San Diego so that they can create a Jurassic Park zoo in the United States. And John Hammond wants uh, to send Jeff Goldblum and a team of scientists to study the dinosaurs on Site B so that they can lobby against this idea. That's the plot. So 90% of the movie takes place on Site B, which is basically where the movie shifts from um, sort of a chase thrill ride to a horror movie. You know, we talked about this with Scream and, and Paranormal Activities sort of the basic uh, the, the basic structure of a, of a horror movie is there's a monster chasing a bunch of people, picking them off one by one. And while there isn't a tremendous amount of jump scares, it's the same premise here. It's a bunch of people on a deserted island running around for monsters. There isn't much else happening with this movie. Um, I'll, and I'll get to some of the things that really pissed me off in just a moment. But the last act of the movie, they finally get a Tyrannosaurus Rex off this island and they bring it to San Diego, and then it turns into Godzilla. Which was an infinitely more fun experience visually for me than everything else that led up to it at this point. Unfortunately, this rest of the movie is so bad, in my opinion, that I I don't fully enjoy the Tyrannosaurus Rex wrecking uh, San Diego. I wish that that instead of it being the Lost World, that the first ten minutes of this was evil corporation brings a bunch of dinosaurs to San Diego and the San Diego's Jurassic park falls apart and the dinosaurs escape and then start trashing San Diego. Oh my God. That would have made for an infinitely better movie. I don't know how you would have employed the humans in that sort of thing. I don't know. You know, I don't Jeff Goldblum maybe running around with a death ray from independence day, but uh, nonetheless, <laughs> It would have. I think it would have, because then you could have played around with with a question about you know once you've decided that it is a good idea to clone an extinct species, what happens when the extinct species and the present species meet head on? 
you know, there was a question asked about dinosaurs in the present day uh, living amongst humans and what the implications of that were. But you don't really get a chance to experience that because, you know, the, the dinosaurs are still in the habitat they created for them. Well, they could have played around with that idea had they actually had a bunch of various dinosaurs wrecking San Diego. And it would have been awesome to watch. And then you could have, you know, fleshed out the idea of this is why you don't want to do this sort of thing. You can't have dinosaurs in a modern civilization. It doesn't work. These are giant monsters. No, instead, it was almost as if they looked at Jurassic Park and said, Nobody wants to think during a summer blockbuster. Let's take out all the philosophy and just leave the monsters in. Voila, the lost world. I'm sorry, were we talking about a movie? I was writing my outline for the next great Xbox One game, uh, Death Ray Jeff Goldblum. (laughs) Jeff Goldblum running around with a Death Ray shooting dinosaurs in San Diego. Well, hey, they got to get sick of Halo sometime. Make right. the dinosaur. Hang on, you got, you got to make it relevant to 2013. Make the dinosaurs zombies. So, uh, Activision, <laughs> that whole Call of Duty thing's got to be petering out by now, right? <laughs> I'm, you're really into this idea of Jeff Goldblum running around with a giant alien death ray shooting zombie dinosaurs. Dude, you know what? Competition is good in the video game industry, and right now. I am all for Xbox giving Sony PlayStation 4 just enough of a fair fight to make it interesting. So, quite so frankly, I say if we can give I say if we can give them a new awesome IP like IP like this, oh hell yeah. <laughs> so getting back to the topic at hand, do you now understand what my giant frustration with the Lost World was? It was more of the same, less the good stuff plus Jeff Goldblum. No, I I, I totally understand it. It was a far, number one, it was a far thinner story. Um, The closest it comes to the kind of commentary that Jurassic Park made is you get Vince Vaughn's just obstinately, willfully, forcefully obnoxious uh, would-be soldier of Greenpeace, occasionally throwing out the odd pithy remark at... Uh, the other InGen team on the island about how wrong and barbaric it is it is to hunt the di- to hunt the dinosaurs and humans are the only predators that hunt when they're not hungry. Well, I was going to say, first um, of all, in real life, Vince Vaughn would have been tried for murder. I mean, in in this movie, oh, because he's Greenpeace, you know, and he's Plan B as he's called. He lets loose a dinosaur with them proceeds to trample the camp and kill people. Now, I'm no lawyer, <laughs> but I'm fairly certain if I wandered into the Tampa Lowry Park Zoo and, you know, let the lions loose, you know, so that I can make a taco out of them at a later date, and the lions <laughs> and the lions don't quite make it into the taco, no, instead they kill a man. I'm pretty certain the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office or the Tampa Police Department would be arresting me for murder. (laughs) The implications of what Vince Vaughn does were not thought out very well. It was just like, we'll just have Vince Vaughn playing the part of uh, Wayne Knight, and at which point he will let a dinosaur lose and hilarity will ensue. You know what? They they got lucky because they rolled the dice on the Stone Cold Steve Austin thing on the idea of... You can have somebody actually doing inherently 
fairly deplorable, unethical, generally wrong things. But as long as you have them doing have them doing them to bad people, hey, no harm, no foul. <laughs> so and, well, well, no, honestly, they 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 got they got away with it. Um, but yeah, so you you've got a paper thin plot. You've got far less interesting performances from the likes of Jeff Goldblum and Julianne Moore and Vince Vaughn than we got out of Jeff Goldblum, Sam Neill, and Laura Dern in the first one. Uh, I got to admit, Pete Postlethwaite is kind of awesome, but Pete Postlethwaite is kind of awesome in almost anything. So it just... I'll even go so far as to say as the special effects are about as good as the first one, but the problem is the scenes with the dinosaurs just aren't as compellingly executed. They don't have that same sense of tension. Watching the two Tyrannosaurus Rexes play around with the trailer for what seemed like an eternity was almost the same as watching old people fucking a porno. It was awkward, (laughs) it took too long, and by the end of it, I didn't even want to see... By the end of it, I was too tired to watch the movie anymore. They They were going for spectacle with that, but of course... The thing that they didn't realize was was that they used the T-Rex perfectly. Absolutely to the letter perfect in the first movie. Um, I'm sorry, but if you weren't on the edge of your seat in that famous first scene when it's revealed in, revealed in Jurassic Park, the, the one where for the most part there's there's minimal soundtrack. Just the sound of the rain pouring on the ve- on the vehicle, frightened gas, and the T Rex roaring terrifyingly every now and then. Then, quite frankly, congratulations, congratulations, because you have got you've got something colder than ice water in your veins. You you have got just pure nitroglycerin running through your circulatory system. Um. Later on in the movie, appears out of appears out of nowhere in a nice little surprise to pick off a little snack from the Gallimimus herd during that equally awesome scene. But the T Rex is the T Rex is there. It does its thing. It's gone. It's kind of like the way I was Pyramid say, it's Head an anti-hero. was. It, 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 it's in... kind of like yeah. It, it, it's kind of like the way if I'm to make if I'm to make two comparisons, the way. Um, Pyramid Head was used effectively in Silent Hill 2 and has gratuitous fan service and everything and everything else. Or the way the Nemesis was used properly in the Resident Evil series. It's it's there just long enough to make an impact and just often enough, or just infrequently enough, I should say, to be special when it shows up and never so often that it grows tiresome. And then it shows up at the shows up at the end to pick a fight with a pack of velociraptors and you get a, a wonderful, wonderful climax to the real action-filled part, part of the movie. In the second movie, they resort to just using the T-Rex as nothing but spectacle. That's well, it's a monster. It's, it, instead of it being sort of an yeah. instead of it being sort of an amoral anti-hero um, you know, it's a T-Rex doing a T-Rex thing and the world kind of having to exist around this giant monster that is out of place in time. 
it becomes Toby the Demon. You know, it becomes uh, Freddy Krueger, Jason, Leatherface. It becomes uh, Ghostface. You know, it's just a thing chasing you through the woods. They might as well have given the T-Rex a chainsaw. <laughs> you, oh, you haven't watched the Nostalgia Critics review of Jurassic Park, have you? No, I have not. <laughs> Do it. Uh, I, 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 I highly recommend I mean, how the song is called, I'm a motherfucking T-Rex. <laughs> In any case, I the, pro, the the Lost World fails on a lot of levels, mostly because, like I, as I said, it it takes everything that was great about the first movie and it gives you what producers and studio executives thought was great about the first movie. You know, I, this was another classic example of the people in charge of making these things and and uh, decision-making having the Vince McMahon autism approach where they don't know why something works, they just know it works, and so they just get, you know, dinosaur people like the dinosaurs, more dinosaurs, you know, and they never once thinking any deeper than that. People like Jeff Goldblum. More Jeff Goldblum. Well, he doesn't have anything to do in this movie. More Jeff Goldblum. You know, I, 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 I sometimes. I just want to know who said. I just want to know who said more Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> do people love his character? I don't know why, but um, I, you know, people also think Two and a Half Men's a good show. Like my parents, there's no accounting for taste. But what real? But uh, you know, all of these things drove me crazy in the movie. But at the absolute worst. Now, look, I'm not like my good friend, the the uh, the Lord of the Evil Dance, Mister Robert Winfrey. Um, I have, as as Sean uh, likes to use the phrase, I have one of my own little uh, crumb munchers, uh, ankle biters. I, uh, I have, oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, crumb snatchers. I have my own glorious child who I love more than life itself, and I love being a parent. And I do not think that every child in every movie is the worst thing ever captured on celluloid. I really don't. Jake Lloyd aside, most children performances I actually can tolerate or even, God help me, enjoy. I think Um, you're exaggerating by saying most, but a few every now and then manage to actually act. They are not as bad as some people like Winfrey make them out to be. However, the shoehorned in black daughter of white Jeff Goldblum. (laughs) Who, A, couldn't act her way out of a paper bag. B, her whole, I I guess her purpose and her, her name should have been plot device. Because she is nothing more, she she serves no other purpose other than to give him something to, you know, like an obstacle to deal with while he's on the island. I guess it's also to give him um, some more fleshing out. Like, hey, on top of being a really smarmy character and a mumbler, you're also a shitty father. Fantastic. I root for you. <laughs> you know, good. You know, and I guess at the end of it, like, look, I'm not a shitty father. I saved you from the monster. Great. So she serves no purpose. But my favorite thing to hate about her, and I remember this like it happened yesterday. I saw The Lost World in theaters, and I remember they mentioned the fact that early on in the movie, as an example of his shitty fathering, that um, she was cut from the gymnastics team. And oh, there's a, yeah. 
And, and that foreshadows later on when she does a mini gymnastics routine on haphazard parallel uh, on haphazard um, non-parallel bars. I don't know what you call them, but they're not parallel. This the uneven bars, yeah. This, yeah, kids. This would be what I'm gently, tastefully going to refer to as anally raping the audience with Chekhov's gun. Yeah. So they so they set this up that she was cut from the gymnastics team, and you're like, oh, that happened months ago. Where were you at, Dad? And further endearing her to the audience with her um, shitty attitude. Because uh, all kids are bad and all teenagers are garbage, uh, according to Hollywood. So then later on, while they're being pursued by one of Velociraptors, who are the villains in these movies... Um, and are and are requiring evil genius brains, as as it's pointed out la- uh, later on. <laughs> this the, they're like in an enclosed area, and she jumps onto a uh, uneven bars. She does a routine, mesmerizes the dinosaur who is watching this, going, um, "All right, very nice, very nice, Mary Lou Retton," <laughs> and then proceeds to kick this fucking thing out the window. <laughs> Fuck you. Fuck you running! <laughs> Fuck you for president! <laughs> Fuck you on the moon! With the nudes! Nudes on the moon! <laughs> Fuck off! If a if a ten-year-old kicks a dinosaur through a window, that's it. The movie is over. End of line. There, There's something far worse about this, though, that you're missing. Oh, really? And... Well, yeah, it is arguably far worse about it because it plays into one of the greatest crimes of filmmaking, especially any movie where you have a prominent child character. (sighs) Go back to the first movie for a second. Let's recap what these super-intelligent eating machines (laughs) that can kill pretty much any fucking carbon-based thing they come across accomplished throughout the course of this movie leading up to the climactic assault on the kitchen. They manage to kill Samuel L. Jackson, whose heart beats nothing but pretty much concentrated fuck-yo-couch throughout his body, and manage to resort him to an arm that's left hanging in an electrical shed. They manage to outwit and ambush what we have established is a celebrated big game hunter who, as he points out, has hunted things that can hunt you. Even man, even seems to vaguely understand the typical ambush tactics that they that they would use, and they manage to get the jump on him, despite his being armed with a damn 12-gauge, that he sits there and aims for what feels like a good 20 minutes at the same animal. What is it that ultimately manages to most effectively outwit these celebrations of pure murder? John Hammond's dippy grandchildren. <laughs> the whiny, like, obnoxious, the, the whiny, obnoxious little vegetarian daughter, who speaks both in a way, in a way that a 
demonstrates that Hollywood has no idea how kids actually speak and behave, and B, demonstrates that Hollywood has no idea what a fucking hacker is. <laughs> Just as an aside, her, my father loves and her, and her, and her equally irritating little brother. No, no, hang on. And, and her equally irritating little brother, Timmy. Wait, 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 wait. Yeah, let me just, let me know, just say this because I want you to finish South this. South Park episode. It's it's mandatory. We said then in this movie. Wait, 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 yeah. wait, wait, wait. Please, please pause for just one second. My father loves on-screen hackers because all you see them like doing is typing, 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 and he always says the same thing. It's worse than his line about wrestling not really working that way. You know, um, he always says the same thing whenever he sees someone on-screen hacking into something. He was like, "You would never type that much." Well, they they type and type and type and no. type and type, and computers don't work that way. Please continue. No, they they don't. Hollywood has never understood this. Hollywood has no idea how anything works. There there is Hollywood logic, and then there is people logic. Planet Hollywood is not an entirely inaccurate name. <laughs> it, it, it is it is practically its own little secluded micro nation. For fuck's sake! And then in this movie, we get another example. This one isn't so much. This doesn't work that way. As it is just a matter of, no, I scream Hosanna and bullshit on high to the heavens. No kid talks this way. No kid actually sits there and dares their parents to punish them. Actually, sincerely tells them, I want you to punish me. I want you, I want you to ride me, bag me, rain me, whatever the fuck it is she says. No. No, 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 I say thee, fuck your couch, nay. Any other kid would look at an absentee parent like Jeff Goldblum and say, I'm going to ride this till the wheels fall off. Mm-hmm. I, I have hit the dipshit dad pick six. It, <laughs> and also, no kid is going to read so much into parental commandments that they're going to hear Jeff Goldblum's pithy little snark and say, well, I thought you really meant that you actually wanted me to come along and you wanted me to disobey to disobey you. No. Okay. Since, since you're bringing that up, yes, first of all, her dialogue about that is drivel. But the sheer act of sneaking onto the trailer and showing up there, look... You can't get on a plane today without someone taking with, – without, first of all, someone giving you a reach-around, uh, a prostate yeah. exam, and collecting some DNA from somewhere, you know, on your person. You know, my, my kid, my two-year-old, decidedly not a terrorist, is still, you know, checked, <laughs> to, you know, and, and they've got to bring documents and a birth certificate and everything else because, you know, because she might actually be a bomb animated to look like a child. So, uh, it just and granted, this was back in the '90s, but still, no child is sneaking onto this thing. I mean, the, the, I mean, people listening to this going, "Oh, come on, you have to suspend your disbelief somewhat. You're watching a dinosaur movie." Okay, fine, but there are. I, I look. I'm willing to believe dinosaurs can exist among you know in modern times. I'm not willing to believe that a ten year old snuck onto a fucking no. scientific trailer and transported uh, you, himself halfway you know across what? the world. But, they're suspending the dinosaur disbelief, okay? That's one thing. It's a whole other thing when you're having to, dis- to suspend your disbelief about the way human beings in the really real world actually function 
and somehow giving the benefit of a doubt that this shit is not just 100% pure from concentrate plot convenience. Yeah. If your child ever says to you, I want you to punish me, hold my feet to the fire, what's wrong with you, be, res- be a responsible parent, uh, please write into The Long Road to Ruin. I would like details. I would also like to know <laughs> what you did as a parent to produce this. Yeah, yeah. You're basically saying that kid, for MMA fans out there, is doing the equivalent to Gray Maynard getting fed up and standing in front of Clay Guida and punching himself in the face <laughs> and, saying, come, and saying, come on, hit me. So, is there any more to say about, I, I mean, The Lost World is tolerable if you're just into wanting to watch a completely brainless monster movie. Because that's all it really is. And and like I and said, you know, if you actually fast you know forward or just skip to, skip to the end with the Tyrannosaurus Rex, does a better impression of Godzilla than Godzilla did with Matthew Broderick. I, it's actually, I mean, you, that's like the most fun part of the movie. And I wish and you know there was what? more. Even... Even the T-Rex rampage wasn't all that impressive to me. Uh, it's it's just, I, I got the feeling that that's not the kind of thing that Spielberg exactly does well. Um, yeah, Spielberg's actually being quoted as saying he got bored with The Lost World, which is exactly what it feels like. And let me tell oh, you, that's yeah, not good that's abundantly apparent. If, if the director is bored with the movie, your movie stinks. <laughs> and speaking well, of right. and 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 the fact is, you know, uh, to point to how to do a giant animal rampage well, uh, the most recent movies to have hit, to have hit theaters, you know, which one I would actually point to, Peter Jackson's King Kong. I I thought the Kong rampage at the end of that movie was extremely well done. This one. You know, I, I realize hindsight being twenty twenty and all, but when I can point to a scene from your movie and realize that I reacted the same way to it the same way I did as a scene from Transformers, your movie has not held up well. <laughs> you have not done a historically great job comparatively with giant creature rampages. No, I, I like I said. I, I, I've said it a couple times, it bears repeating, and I want to end our discussion of The Lost World on this so we can get on to Jurassic Park 3. Um, there was a great movie that wasn't made, unfortunately. That last 10 minutes of the T-Rex running around San Diego and then being lured back on the boat really should have been, and they, 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 there should have been more dinosaurs, and there should have been more rampaging, and what the human being should have had to confront is, what do you do when the past embeds itself in the present and completely disrupts the ecosystem. Can, it's a subject they, the subject they hadn't covered, and it was at least fresh material. Instead, you got the drivel that they gave us, which was basically, this is, yet a, this is a monster movie. Have fun. Can, can you imagine if somebody had, had, ever, had ever done, or if somebody would ever do, a survival horror style dinosaur movie. Like if somebody actually did a humans versus dinosaurs movie in the style of Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead. You know, I was just thinking that because I, because it's, it's Dawn of the Dead where they have to like live in the mall for a while. Um, yep. that, that sort of thing. Yeah. I would love that. I would, I would love, you know, you were talking about Jurassic four and I was, I wasn't really kidding when I said I would, I would find it hysterical 
if they actually did a Jurassic Four where they Jurassic Park Four where they actually got the park up and running, and then it goes haywire and it kills a bunch of tourists. I think that's hilarious to me. I would love that because um, I, I like watching monsters smash stuff. It's why I watch pro wrestling, um, <laughs> especially back in the Attitude Era. That really was monster smashing things. Um, but it, you know, but in lieu of that, I would absolutely. You know, if they, if they don't want to necessarily do that, they could say that that's the premise of the movie or the setup where it's at, you know, the, the, they've, the dinosaurs, they brought the dinosaurs to the United States against, you know, you know, despite the fact that in, in the second one it didn't work. But they managed, it's 20 years later, they managed to get it up and running, and the dinosaurs uh, ran amok. And 10 years later, they had procreated X amount, and dinosaurs ate most of the human beings. Uh, and course, now we're dealing with... The only problem with that now that I really think about it, though, is the part where you would really have to suspend uh, a precarious amount of disbelief, dare I say even an impossible one, is you would have to suspend the disbelief, disbelief of, you mean to tell me that the complete force of the United States military... The Velociraptors manage, beat the soldiers and turned... manage to eradicate no, the uh, conservation preserve of dinosaurs? They, they made the Velociraptors so fucking smart in these movies, and they... And in the third one, which we're going to talk about now, the Velociraptors, they, they, they talked about how, like, they were acquiring more intelligence, like their computers. Basically, the Velociraptors and Skynet, same entity. They, they just <laughs> – I, I mean, that's what they came up with, essentially. So I would tell you that in my Jurassic Park 4, the Velociraptors overtook the army by getting into the vehicles and piloting them themselves. The Velociraptors got to where you know get to the red button. They take over the new nuclear arsenal. Um, basically, the dinosaurs commit Judgment Day. You know, you know what? I think Actually, I would. Well, as long as they're being this intelligent, why don't we go for broke and just have one of them manage to get elected president? In we elected Barack Obama. I don't see why people wouldn't go for a Velociraptor. Fair point. <laughs> and there's half our listeners going, fuck off. Uh, 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 hey, hey, you know what? Electing him the first time around, okay, fair play. I'll grant you that one. Re-electing him? <laughs> Don't blame me. I voted for Kodos. Now listen. That is the equivalent to the firework blowing up in Marion Pippin's face and them just going, <laughs> let's get another one. <laughs> All right. Jurassic Park 3. So, because God doesn't completely hate me, they abandon Jeff Goldblum and they go back to Sam Neill. Yes. This one isn't based uh, on a book for, of any well, Unfortunately, though, uh, in one of those uh, Spider-Man makes a deal with the devil situations, uh, unfortunately, we got rid of Goldblum, but we also got rid of Spielberg and Crichton. Yes. And, and, and it shows. Uh, Jurassic Park 3 is it's kind of like it's the Danny DeVito in Twins of Jurassic Park where, you know, everything uh, everything that was great went into the first one, forget about the second one, and the shit that's left over got made into Jurassic Park 3. The shit that got made over became Danny DeVito, if anyone ever saw that movie. You're, that, that, you're actually, you're not, actually, you're not entirely wrong um, because actually a number of scenes and elements from Jurassic Park 3 were parts of the books um, Lost World, respectively, in Jurassic Park that didn't end up making it into the movie. So, um, so, yeah, that's right. So Jurassic Park 3, 
Uh, we go back to Sam Neill as Dr. Alan Grant. And, and this is what I mean. You know, if they had never made another one, it's bad enough that there was never any uh, – there was never really any uh, payoff to um, the whole parenting angle from, from the movie. But you can kind of forgive that and say, ah, oh, well, whatever. You know, they didn't do it. They, they decide to readdress it, but they readdress it in the worst fucking way possible. Because, again, it, it, it's like addressed and then summarily dismissed. He doesn't marry Laura Dern. Laura Dern marries somebody else that wants to have kids, and they go on to have a child. And so the movie opens up, and you think that like him and Laura Dern had, finally got married and had a kid and everything, and that's not what happens. Uh, as it turns out, he's just visiting, and he and, and the kid refers to him as the dinosaur man. And I was like, oh. <laughs> All right, way to start the movie off on a downer. And even then, it's like you're at least hoping there's an arc here where they're going to introduce a love interest, and with him and a love interest, then he finally has it. Nope. <laughs> it's like they, they never address it again. It's never brought up. The, the whole beginning of the movie is to set up a is to set up um, the uh, conclusion of the movie, which has nothing to do with children. It has to do with getting them. It has to do with getting Costa Rica to declare the Site B as a nature preserve, which was the problem with the second movie. <laughs> resolution, that's the word I was looking for. The, the whole beginning of the movie is to set up the resolution at the end, and it has nothing to do with what he's learned about himself in, in, in terms of wanting children or the regret that he seems to be struggling with at the beginning of this third one. It's like... Sure, we've now written into this character regret about not having children and lost love and everything, and we don't care because monsters. He also turns into Jeff Goldblum for some odd. It was like we couldn't get the actual Jeff Goldblum, so Sam Neill, do your best Jeff Goldblum, and completely be negative on this experience, have nothing good to say about it, be completely against it the entire time, and will write contrivances and plot devices to make you be on the island anyway. This is some of the worst forced plot work I've ever seen. Let me quick break this down for people. He's tricked by Tia Leone and William H. Macy into going back to the island to go look for their kid who had a parasailing accident and was left stranded on the island. That's it. That's your fucking movie. Have fun, folks. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's, that, that's about it. There is nothing greater, nothing overarching. It's just a straight-up rescue mission. Um, in which case, guys, you couldn't have at least subbed Sam out for Chuck Norris? Well, I mean, there was a great movie that came out with Sigourney Weaver where uh, Sigourney Weaver doesn't want to go back to the monster world, but they bring her, but they need her because she's the expert on the monsters. So... They uh, sent her girl. With, a with a group of Marines to go deal with the monsters, and she's just there as the expert. I don't remember that from Working Girl. <laughs> it uh, it would have made for an in look if they were going to do this movie with that plot line, they should have left out. They, they they should have basically stolen from Aliens. I would have accepted the movie then. You know, if Sam Neill's just there as an advisor, oh, alien. Oh, okay, gotcha. To yeah, yeah. <laughs> to a group of Marines that are sent on a mission to 
to rescue William H. Macy's kid. Okay, fine. And then hilarity ensues as dinosaurs completely upend everything they try to do because the velociraptors are smarter than human beings. And so the (laughs) velociraptors, you know, cut the power to the ship. Um, The velociraptors, who will, of course, now have uh, uh, acid blood, uh, (laughs) will start to burn things. And then we could have had a velociraptor queen. It would have been great. (laughs) Well, we, we do have to point out that by this point, apparently the raptors have learned to communicate. Yeah. As as in their as in their like with verbally and with eye contact and gestures communicating. Not not the way other animals communicate with posture and whatnot, but as in they're kind of just visibly gesticulating. <laughs> so bad. <laughs> you know what else gets annoying about this movie? Now, I, at the Where beginning, do you want to begin? <laughs> at the begin, at the beginning of this podcast, um, low ninety minutes ago, I played the Jurassic Park theme, and it's kind of like what I was saying about like Lex Otis's slash Lex Luthor's theme in the Superman podcast, where you know every time you hear those particular notes, that particular song, you know, you know what's supposed to be indicated on screen. Um, you know, there's characters or situations that are associated with a certain piece of music. You will, full, whenever you hear the, you know, that's, that's the most likely cantina. Um, that's always Darth Vader. Um, every time you see dinosaurs in this movie, you get John Williams' epic score, except that the dinosaurs could have been juggling. It wouldn't have mattered. I mean, it's like they're playing this really, really, you know, it's supposed to. The whole Jurassic Park score is supposed to scream wonderment. It's my God! It's this. It's this fantasy come to life. But they're overusing it to the point where it becomes absolutely meaningless. You know, if you want, if you say, yeah. Mark, say something about this movie that you haven't already said about Jurassic Park Two. It's they completely misuse the score, as if they, yeah. You know, you know that that first time you really hear the main theme in Jurassic Park. If if you're a veteran of a lot of great Hollywood blockbusters, especially a lot of Spielberg blockbusters, you rank that right up there as one of the greatest introductions of both a theme and the movie's main device of all time. Uh, not just of any Spielberg movie, but of any movie ever. When when the theme starts to starts to swell and the camera Hands up to the hands up to the brachiosaurus. You even remember the setup shots to it, like the the fairly comical moment where uh, Ellie Sattler is prattling on about the plant, how it's the plant has been ex- extinct since the creation Cretaceous, and everybody is just casing up in obvious "oops, I shit my pants" wonderment, and then Alan just grabs her head and cranes it upward to see what they're all to get her attention, to see what they're all looking at. It sticks in your mind. It, it, it is indelibly there, and it ain't leaving. It's there for the rest of your movie-going life. And you're going to remember, yeah, that, that that chill, that sense of wonderment at, at looking up and seeing this titanic creature brought to life. And, you know... It had been a while since I'd seen The Lost World before until I watched rewatch it for this review, and I kept waiting for that kind of moment 
And God love them. They kind of tried with the herd of Stegosauruses, I guess. But it just wasn't the same. And in Jurassic Park 3, there is no such moment like that at all. The, the closest you get is when the great big uh, Ultrasaurus, is that Ultrasaurus, is that the name of the of the giant bigger than T-Rex monster dinosaur? That's about as close as you get. And even that feels kind of underwhelming. Yeah, it's it's not a good movie. But the setup to it is very forced. Like I said, William H. Macy and T. Leone manipulate and, and uh, trick Sam Neill into going back on the island. Um, they promise him the world. They turn and, and, and they're liars. I mean, that's and, and that thing of it is, is that the movie spends a lot of time dealing with them. You know, it's. Uh, William H. Macy and Tia Leone's characters are actually divorced, and the movie spends a tremendous amount of time on this relationship. And let me tell you what, I could not give a fuck about these people. The movie tries to make you care, and I don't know if even holding a gun to my head would have gotten me to care about either of those two people. I mean, when the setup, when when you, you you no sooner get to know their characters... And it turns out they're just shitty people who are desperate to get their son back. And then the movie spends a tremendous amount of time on this relationship between the two parents and the kid. Who fucking cares? I mean, it was like, did the script meeting for this go something like, we want another Jurassic Park movie, so obviously there's got to be dinosaurs. Well, what else you got? Uh, There's a family and they've got problems great go write it huh it's ugh. there's no i i i've seen some bad movies in my time you know there are movies that were never going to be good no matter what you did with them um and you can and and you can hear about them on the bad movie review club with sean comer and jeremy lambert but this was a movie that was intended to be good and it was it was the Batman and Robin of this series. It was completely uh, abused by the executives at uh, I guess this was Sony who did this. this was, the, um, was, was it was it Sony or was it was Universal? It was, Universal. It was uh, yeah, it was it was Amblin Entertainment distributed by Universal. Yeah, Universal oh, just you was both the... know better. <laughs> I, I can only imagine that the people at Universal, who I don't pick on nearly as much as the ones I, uh, I do at Warner Brothers, which is like, give us another dinosaur film. We don't care what it's about. And it shows. You know, so I hope that if they're going to uh, dig this this franchise out of the trash and try a reboot, I, I hope that some more time and care is put into this and they actually go back to where the film started with asking important questions about what happens when you decide to clone monsters and bring them into the present day God, and not just and give us a, and not just give us a half a half hand a ham-handed monster movie and that's the really terrifying part is you know the reboots that go out there that, that go out there and work um in movie it obviously franchises get rebooted when they go horribly horribly off the rails and studios think, okay, we might be able to save this, but we have to start over completely from scratch. Um, 
but we think we can still bring some honor back to this good back to this good name is they take a look at everything that had gone wrong in that franchise and they do one of two things a they find some kind of radically different direction they can go in that's going to be a just an entire fresh departure from everything that went wrong that went wrong the first time. Sometimes that works. Came to rebooting the Batman franchise, they took it in a more grounded, real direction, and the result was we got the Dark Knight trilogy. Seems to be working for the Superman franchise in the same in the same way. The other way is you take it and you go back to what worked in the first place and just find a way to retcon, not even mention, completely ignore, or even just explain away everything that everything that went wrong previously. You can take a look at the fact that the, that Doctor Who has gone out of its way to disavow, to completely retcon almost anything about the, the, the Eric Roberts movie except for the fact that, yes, there was an eighth Doctor in that movie. In this case, to my absolute astonishment, they seem to be just taking the direction of Jurassic Park 3, combining it with the Lost World, and going to a downright silly length with it. Oh, we managed to tame a T-Rex. Oh, I can't wait to hear the explanation for this one. And I and I don't mean and I don't mean that in the sense of, gee, sense of well, gee, I wonder how you're going to make this work. But I believe, golly gosh, gee, Jillikers, you can do it. Um, I really, I really, really want to know how are you going to take take basically the Dexter Morgans of the animal world as you built them up. <laughs> I want to see a close-up shot of a velociraptor. I want to I want to see a close-up shot of a Velociraptor with smeared clown makeup, saying, "Where did I get a load of me?" That's what I want to see in the next movie. I want to see that. I want to see uh, another Velociraptor telling someone that he uh, ate uh, he ate his victim's uh, liver with a side of Chianti and some fava beans. Um, I want to see I, I want to see Pteranodons dropping sharp bombs. On San Diego, just I big think, flailing, chomping great white sharks. I'm telling you, I think Universal needs to go full idiot with the next movie and just have a dinosaur war. I think if I think if we've learned anything from the upcoming Pacific Rim movie is that America needs more giant monsters destroying cities, fighting giant robots. Please give us one of the following movies. Please give us either Transformers versus Jurassic Park or or Jurassic Park versus Terminator. I'll take either one. You know what? At this point, honestly, it wouldn't surprise me. I'm not even going to express optimism about this. It would not surprise me if considering that we're going with this whole, oh, they trained the T-Rex and the Velociraptors to behave, if instead, instead of getting dinosaurs versus the Terminator, we instead got dinosaurs versus humans and the Beastmaster. You know what would be awesome? 
is if in the same movie they they have the dinosaurs that they think they think they've trained the dinosaurs and then the dinosaurs revolt and destroy everything then they flash forward about a thousand years and they say in the exact same dialogue they had in the first scene where they tell you about the dinosaurs the exact same thing but we think we've trained the xenomorphs and then the xenomorph and just yeah, and just keep going i mean that, that there's an idea that, that just never has an, an end go until you've hit 2 hours I, you know what? I really think, I really believe that eventually when Hollywood has remade every franchise it can possibly remake, when it's rebooted everything, when it's rehashed everything, when it's long, when it's, you know, long past the appropriate appointed time, sequelized everything, that's what we're going to start getting. We are start going to get just more and more insane fuck it crossovers like the old days of the Universal Monster movies. Oh, yeah. Except it's just going to get increasingly more and more. more Sean, and more I, ha- I, I, I have it. If you're listening, Universal, if you're listening, Warner Brothers, this is your next mega billion-dollar blockbuster. Alien versus Predator versus Jurassic Park. I can't believe nobody has thought of that yet. <laughs> it doesn't matter I, I, that these are all existing in different times. It doesn't matter. Could you imagine the fight I, scene between the Xenomorph and a Velociraptor? I'm trying to think here. I think 20th Century Fox owns the Predator and Alien franchises. So you would have to get some kind of uh, of co-financing, co-production deal going. Which is, I got which is it. entirely unheard of between Fox and Universal. I got it. I got it, because then, then then you don't have to do cross-production company, studio type thing. We'll keep it all within Universal. Okay. Jurassic Park versus E.T. Have E.T. come back to Earth to find Elliot or some shit, and, that that, and they've discovered that the dinosaurs have taken over, and that the humans are on the run, and E.T. brings back an army of his species to fight the dinosaurs <laughs> on behalf of the humans. You're welcome, Hollywood! <laughs> oh, this is uh, this is priceless. The only thing I would maybe add to that as a cherry on top would be see if we can get the people who made Mac and Me on board. <laughs> I just want to see E.T. with a glowing finger in the air going, Freedom! <laughs> can, we put him in, can we put him in, like, William Wallace makeup? <laughs> So, folks, this has been the long road to ruin. (laughs) Because I'll be here for the next hour coming up with silly ideas, and i got to go to bed. This this has been been a special edition of the long road to ruin. Treading water until we get to twilight. (laughs) (laughs) And and twilight is the... Twilight is going to be the next franchise we're going to be doing. My wife will be on. Uh, so two weeks from today, uh, we'll be doing the entire – it's going to be another lo- um, extra long Road to Ruin. Um, we're going to do all it's five movies in one shot. So we're going to book it for two hours, and the two hours will probably roll into two to three hours uh, so we can get them all done in one shot. Uh, my wife will be on, Melissa Radledge, uh, who uh, who read all the books all the movies and definitely has some 
concerted views on the subject. So we're going to long road to ruin. We'll tackle the entire Twilight series on the next podcast. And then the show after that, we will be bringing on uh, my fellow 411 podcast uh, competitor, as it were. Um, he is part of the Zonka Broadcasting Network. Mr. Jeremy Lambert, and speaking of monster movies, we will be doing the Transformers franchise. So the calendar looks like this. Today is not November. Um, Today is July 2nd. July 16th is Twilight, and then July 30th, presumably, will be Transformers. Uh, In August, Sean will be bringing a friend of his onto the podcast, and we will be going through... Aliens, Predator, and then Aliens versus Predator. Um, that'll, and then that'll bring us into September, where uh, hopefully before I go on hiatus, we'll tackle Rambo and such. So that's what uh, that's what we look like for the next couple of weeks. If you would be so kind as to uh, go on to iTunes and check out the Rattledge in Broadcasting Network, we've got The Long Road to Ruin, we've got the 411 Ground and Pound Radio Show, which is uh, an hour to two hours uh, on the world of mixed martial arts. We recently just did a preview of UFC 162, which is this Saturday night, which I'll be covering for 411. Um, always a good time on that show. So check check that out. If you like music on the Rattle and Broadcasting Network, you can find the 401 Music Zone podcast, where Robert Cooper and I review albums, and we do career retrospectives. We just capped off the career retrospective of Megadeth, which is uh, on the which is posted now. You can find it uh, in iTunes. Hopefully, we'll be up on Stitcher soon, and you can find it on 401mania.com in the Music Zone. Uh, Sean, go ahead and do your plugs, and then uh, we'll start to wind out of here. Yes, everybody remember that if it's that if it comes from Rodlich and Broadcasting, it is 100% pure rib. Um, as for my pluggery, uh, quick little announcement, uh, I am coming up on what will actually be my last two weeks of doing Music's Three R's. Um, I'm not leaving 411, I just, I have another column idea that I want to do, and it's just taking me a little time to get it developed. But I told Jeremy Thomas that I would go ahead and write out the last couple of weeks of this little circus weekend review. Weekend review of music. This week we have already got a couple of duty, a couple of duties, <laughs> duty, a couple of doozies to talk about. In particular, the world's richest DJ basically telling everybody that likes Daft Punk, you don't really like Daft Punk. No, you don't. You don't like them. You just think they're cool. You just think you like them. Um, God only knows what the rest of this week is going to is going to hand me. I haven't even really looked at today's headlines yet. But in the meantime, later on this later on this month, I'll probably have more information on this when we do the Twilight podcast. I am going to be launching a still as yet unnamed gaming podcast alongside Sam or Katie. Uh, we are not going to be on 411 Mania with this one. This is going to be exclusive to another site run by a good friend of mine uh, called SaveContinue.com. Please go there and support them for all of your gaming news across all gaming platforms. 
coming up later on this month, I will have the second episode in the return of the Bad Movie Review Club. Jeremy Lambert and I will be getting together on both of our respective ends of the tin can string between the Man Cave and the Fortress of Shawnitude. And we are going to be talking about Snoop Dogg's glorious, glorious 2001 feature film horror debut, Bones. Listen, nobody cares about Snoop Dogg or any of that stuff. When are you going to get to Pam Greer? Pam Greer is in Bones. When are you going to get to Roger Corman and Pam Greer? Probably after Bones. Okay. Yes. <laughs> um, but, yeah, otherwise, the big thing is, in two weeks, stay tuned to 411 Media Music Zone for the debut of my brand-new column called Give Life Back to Music. Uh, it's kind of a combination of... Mark and of Mark and Robert's career retrospectives with Adam Forcina's evolution schematic. Uh, column by column, I'm going to be taking a look from a fairly personal perspective at the career arcs, one album at a time, of some of my favorite artists, some of the artists that really make me love listening to music and studying it and learning more about it and just being a general geeky little historian. So... Go ahead and check all of that out all the way through July and stay tuned in August because I've actually got much more coming up in late July at late July that I think you'll enjoy as details develop. Okay. Um I will be on the Casual Heroes podcast talking wrestling uh tomorrow night. Uh this Thursday, crossing my fingers, we will be uh putting out another the right hook on from the right radio.com. There's a friend of mine, an old friend of mine from grad school, who's a professional social worker. She recently got an article published in, I believe the Dallas morning news. So um, I'm going to be interviewing her in the very near future. And uh, parts of that interview, the whole thing will be on my blog talk radio account. Parts of the interview will also be featured on upcoming episodes of the right hook. Um, you can also look for uh, my guest appearances on uh, Thoughts from the Man Cave with Jeremy Lambert as we are currently in the middle of doing um, retrospectives of HBO's Oz. We've already got season one in the can. That's on the Zonka Podcasting Network. Season two will be up uh, soon. All right. So for Mr. Sean Comer, this has been The Long Road to Ruin. I am the mandated reporter, Mark Radledge. And be well, be safe, and behave. Bye-bye.